welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. To open the program today, we are going to watch a clip from Don Lemon on CNN interacting with Hillary Fordwich. This is a point that's been made on this program before, and I think it was articulated in a way Don Lemon was not expecting from a guest on his particular show. Check this out. Well, this is coming when, you know, there's all of this wealth and you hear about it comes as England is facing rising costs of living, a living crisis, austerity budget cuts and so on. And then you have those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism. And they're wondering, you know, one hundred billion dollars, twenty four billion dollars here and there, five hundred million there. Some people want to be paid back and uh, and members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you are? You know, you have all of this vast wealth. Those are legitimate concerns. Well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though, what they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa. And when across the entire world, when slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished sla- uh, slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In, in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages. Absolutely. That's where... They should start. And maybe, I don't know, the descendants of those families where they died in the high seas trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something, too, I think, at the same time. It's an interesting discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll continue to to discuss in the future. The context of the segment you just watched was a discussion about the royal family between Don Lemon and Hillary Fordwich, who is paid, I guess, to watch these things and to explain to news organizations the propriety of various ceremonies, and she has knowledge about the royal family. So she's there helping Don Lemon navigate this topic. And Don Lemon, it seems at least, has an idea come to his head about reparations and should the royal family pay reparations. And Hillary Fordwich, I think, did a great job. She made two basic points here that are very important. One is that There is some complexity involved in this because social justice advocates like to paint with a very broad brush. And so they would blame someone who benefited, in their minds, generations downstream from slavery, let's say, as much as they would, or at least they would see that person as complicit, just as they would someone who came from Europe to Africa with a slave ship in order to purchase slaves, as if there's complicity all around that there I think some would probably even say there's equal complicity perhaps Uh, there's a tendency within ideology to flatten everything and so it erases this nuance and Hillary Ford which first makes the point that you can't actually flatten everything like that because look you had the Royal Navy at uh, a point in in the history of the United uh, Kingdom go out and actually round up slavers and impound slave ships so do you punish those people who are involved in that? And and so I think this is actually a, a good point that could be articulated on other issues and even on that particular issue in other ways. I know I've articulated that. I've said, look, it's 
there, there's a difference. You have to make some distinction between those in the United States who inherited slaves and those who were on slave merchant ships going to the Ivory Coast and purchasing slaves. There is a difference between these two things. And that, that distinction was certainly present at the time slavery existed in the United States, chattel slavery. We still have it. We still have slavery, but in various forms, uh, but we don't uh, think of it that way. So we have rising civil slavery. We have uh, the uh, welfare state, which in some ways functions like a slave system. We have the, this whole immigration debacle, illegal migration, and uh, that is the really the creation of a slave class, especially when there's cartels involved. Uh, we have sweatshop labor that goes into many of the products we purchase. I don't know. We could probably go on, but we don't think of those things as slavery. But um, and, and of course, the legal slavery uh, that happens, uh, sex slavery, which also is connected with the border issue. But back when chattel slavery was more normalized, these distinctions uh, were more likely to be made. Nowadays, they're not made at all. You just look back and everyone was equally complicit. Everyone was guilty. What a horrible time. And isn't it awful that white people are still around because they're benefiting from this white privilege, which is part of that, that uh, they, they weren't there in Africa capturing slaves, but because they're white, they must benefit from that in some way. So she makes a great point at first, and it's very concrete. So it puts Don Lemon in an awkward spot. Are you going to then punish people who were not uh, complicit in taking slaves, but in returning slaves or in uh, ending the slave trade? And then she does a, a second thing. There's uh, two points she makes. So the second point is that, and this is actually, I think, uh, the more important point, perhaps, is that if we're going to use equal weights and measures, which is a Christian concept, God is uh, without partiality in this way, then we are going to have to apply, if we want to apply this standard, we're going to have to apply it to those at the beginning of the supply chain. Wouldn't they be the most uh, complicit in this kind of arrangement? Because they're the ones in Africa, they're the ones who are uh, the originators of this particular uh, trade. I mean, it, look, it existed within the continent of Africa before Europeans ever arrived. When they arrived, they took advantage of this, but uh, slavery had already been going on. And, and the Muslims certainly were uh, involved even before the Europeans got there, the Middle Eastern Muslims. So she's making the point how far, where do you want to trace this? If we're going to go back to the beginning, the people who actually were involved in the tribal warfare, the incentivizing, uh, the capturing of, of slaves, then you're going to have to also punish those in Africa. And that's not something that social justice advocates want to talk about because in their scheme, those people can't be guilty. Those people in, in Africa, th that guilt must be minimized somehow, if there is any. Uh, it's got to be the fault of Europeans, specifically Christian Europeans. And so I think what she does is she puts Don Lemon in a very awkward spot and he doesn't have a lot of time in a news segment to really even embrace or, or engage rather these uh, arguments that she's brought up, but uh, they are, they're helpful. And so just stick that in your back pocket when you hear that argument again, two things to remember one, Hey, it's more complicated than you think, give a concrete example. And then two, well, what if we applied the equal uh, standard that you want to, or, or uh, the standard that you're advocating equally? And you can do this on other issues too. It doesn't have to be that particular one. You can do this on a lot of other social justice uh, kind of uh, type issues. Uh, 
Should we believe men who claim that they've been abused, right? I mean, if we're going to believe women, why not men? So you could do this on other issues, but uh, I wanted you to see that and maybe be encouraged by it a little bit. I uh, also wanted to uh, let you know about this. William Wolfe is a rising star in the theological and political conservative movement in evangelicalism. It's called Christian nationalism by the mainstream press, but that movement he is a young face that was part of the Trump administration. I believe he was deputy secretary for the Pentagon. He now is a student at Southern Seminary and also uh, an intern uh, at the seminary. But he, does, he has done a lot of writing for places like Freedom Center and American Reformer. And he's done some speaking and podcasts as well. And he gave a speech recently at the National Conservative convention or conference rather uh, in Miami that just happened uh, about a week ago. And it was interesting because a number of people were speaking there, including Al Mohler, which I'll have some thoughts on at the end of this podcast. But William Wolfe, I thought, did a great job. He had a 15 minute segment where he, well, I'll show you. I'll show you what he said. Let's just play it. And hopefully this will bring you some encouragement just because I know many of you out there are discouraged. And I don't think it's without cause. Many of you are feeling like I do sometimes and wondering, how come there are serious Christians, at least I, I know of serious Christians, in pews across this country, but so few of them seem to make their way to the levels of authority in institutions. And William Wolfe is one of these guys that seems to have uh, some... Uh, some fight in him, some also institutional credibility. He's had previous management experience, like I said, in the Trump administration. And he's energized with a message of political conservatism and biblical orthodoxy at the same time. And we haven't seen this, a young, energized voice advocating these things, I think, often. We don't see it often, and we haven't really seen this kind of energy for a while. So, let me uh, play this for you, at least some of it. It's 15 minutes. We'll see how far we get. And hopefully this is an encouragement. I'm here today in defense of common sense. I don't think I'm particularly brilliant or novel, and I certainly don't intend to be. I hope to be a herald of sort of ancient wisdom that was often more caught than even taught in this country, though it certainly was taught as well. And in a world in a moment turned upside down and gone mad with the woke mind virus, common sense can indeed sound crazy. As G.K. Chesterton said, we shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two make four, in which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure and hang a man for maddening a mob with the news that the grass is green. Well, that world has come to pass. And if you doubt that, I would refer you to my Twitter mentions. And the maddening truth that I'm here to represent is this, is that American Christians should wholeheartedly support an America-first governing agenda, platform, and policy proposals. In fact, we shouldn't just support it. American Christians should demand that from our government. And this isn't driven by racism. This isn't driven by xenophobia. This isn't driven by fascism or whatever new ism the left will come up with and sling at us like mud. For Christians, this is driven by love. 
love for our national neighbor citizens, our flesh and blood American neighbors with whom we share this country, this land, this people, this history, this heritage, and this future. I continue to have moments of radicalization throughout my life. The first one was probably when my firstborn son arrived. And as I've added two more sons to the wolf pack, I've just become increasingly radical because I've got, I've got three white male boys who so I'm probably on an FBI watch list. And I care about the country that they grow up in. And I care that the government that they live under puts their interests first. The great English Baptist pastor and theologian Andrew Fuller, who Charles Spurgeon said was the greatest theologian of his century, delivered an incredible sermon in defense of love of his nation, a primary love of putting it first. It was in 1803 when the British feared an imminent invasion from Napoleon. We'd probably be all better off if I just read the sermon, but let me share a portion with it now. It's entitled Christian Patriotism. I highly recommend that you read it. Baptists actually do have good contributions on this subject. Fuller preaches his sermon out of Jeremiah 29.7, where the Lord commands the Israelites who are in exile, captives in Babylon, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Fuller writes, I do not suppose that the case of these people corresponds exactly with ours, but the difference is of such a nature as to heighten our obligations. They were in a foreign land, a land where there was nothing to excite their attachment, but everything to provoke their dislike. Now, if such was the duty of men in their circumstances, can there be any doubt with respect to ours? Ought we not to seek the good of our native land, the land of our father's graves, a land where we are protected by mild and wholesome laws, administered under a paternal prince, a land where civil and religious freedom are enjoyed in a higher degree than in any other country in Europe, a land where God has been known for many centuries as a refuge, a land where there are greater opportunities for propagating the gospel, both at home and abroad, than in any other nation under heaven. Now, this was in the early 1800s, so Fuller hadn't seen what America became, so I would argue that's America now. But the answer to his rhetorical questions is yes, we should seek the good of our land. He rallied his fellow countrymen, his Christian countrymen, to be willing to take up arms and fight the French. And I don't mean David, but I don't also not mean David, if need be. <laughs> but if we listen to the leading and loud voices in the Christian world today, they would have us beat our ballot boxes into plowshares and retreat from the public square. Just recently, a major Presbyterian pastor literally said, worldly power is anathema. And of course, in Southern Baptist land, we've been repeatedly harangued by leading voices telling us that we must content ourselves to a silo of prophetic witness, where we stand outside the halls of power and we shout truth into these global elites ruining our nation and hoping somehow it pricks their conscience, but we don't roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and take control of things for the sake of the good of our citizens. So we should reject that. And so my two very brief points here is essentially this, that a Christian case for America First government one rejects national Gnosticism. It rejects national Gnosticism and embraces ordered loves in order to help our nation flourish. 
So first, reject national Gnosticism. What do I mean? Well, too many Christians continue to fall prey to this most ancient of Christian heresies, you know, various forms of Gnosticism. And I don't have time to go into all the depths of Gnosticism and what it means, but essentially it's this idea that the material... Yeah, we don't really have time to get into all that either uh, today, but I wanted to bring this to you, and it, we're probably a third of the way through it. And he goes on, he develops these points, but have you heard a pastor or a... Christian leader of any kind articulate what William Wolfe is articulating here. This is what I'm asking. Because I think what he's saying is absolutely correct when it comes to the prevailing voice, at least in the evangelical industry. We hear this notion that Christians ought to, we just heard it from Christianity Today, actually, that Christians ought not get involved with a school board because they should be discipling their families, as if that's that's a false dichotomy, as, as if there's not a third option, you can do both. Uh, that Christians need to be uh, peacemakers. They can't view, they have to somehow navigate these two contradictory political parties by forming a third way to approach politics, the politics of Jesus and that means that we transcend these categories and we're not concerned with worldly power. He's absolutely right. That's what we hear, that we shouldn't be focused on power or politics. And wouldn't it be great if Christians were the ones who actually were involved with making laws and implementing laws because they're the ones that know the lawgiver. They're the ones that know uh, Jesus Christ who laid down the law for us. So, what he's saying should be kind of a big duh. <laughs> of course. Of course, Christians should care about their country. They should care enough about it that they're not afraid of getting their hands a little dirty. Uh, and that would include voting, but more than that. Uh, maybe that would include, depending on your situation, getting involved on the local level. Or maybe that would include uh, writing. Or maybe that would include, um, I don't know, it could be bigger. It could be running for a bigger office than the local level. It could be organizing just people in your vicinity for to, to understand, to educate them about the uh, our our country and uh, biblical principles when it comes to government. I mean, there's so many things. Sky's the limit. But we're not being encouraged in those ways. We're instead we're being discouraged from that. And if there's any political encouragement, it's for Christians to get on board with social justice type stuff. And so William Wolfe is, I think, a breath of fresh air here in that he's someone that is coming from, he doesn't represent Southern Seminary, I'm not saying that, but he, he is someone who is surviving in an institution, and he's writing for uh, emerging Christian conservative organizations, and he's making a positive case here. So just be encouraged, there are people out there who feel very similar to the way you feel about everything that's going on in our country, and they want to put a stop to it. They want to be more aggressive about this. They want to um, proclaim that Christ is Lord, and they want to follow his law. They want to love their country. Uh, he talks later in this particular message about the concepts of, of uh, subsidiarity and how the ordering our affections, the way Augustine talks about or, or rightly ordered affections is means prioritizing in some way your people. He, he says your nation, but your people, your 
uh, people within your proximity. I've made this point many times on this podcast before, and ultimately that seems that concept seems to get people in trouble on the right because it the left hears that and they they the way what they're hearing is you are in league with uh, racists, the people who would would think of their race as more important or uh, better, superior than other races, or you must be in league. Maybe you're someone who thinks your family superior. And, and I mean, I don't hear this one as much, but it seems like all these different archaic, uh, barbaric things now, people think of them that way, but our archaic notions of family honor. So you have dueling, you have feuds, right? Like the, the, that's barbaric. You shouldn't have that. Uh, the divine right of kings, arranged marriages, all these different social things that used to exist, slave labor, um, th- that all these things are, are remnants of a barbaric past and they're horrible. And anyone who would invoke loving one's neighbor and defining neighbor as someone more proximate, so loving those who are close to you, uh, loving those who are in your family, loving those who are in your nation, seeking to protect those things, that you've invested in, that would be that that in their minds they're associating it with all the things I just mentioned, and and so William Wolfe is he he knows he's treading into this area. I think I mean he's coming from the political world into the theological world, and he knows the how high the stakes are, and that's something that I've come to realize kind of through the opposite, coming from more of the theological world and going into the political world now is, uh, or I, I don't know if I want to say I'm in the political world, but I've, I've certainly da- put my toe in <laughs> and I've, uh, putting out content online and putting out content in books has opened me up to criticisms that would not be present in an insular bubble, let's say in a theological world. So, so I'm aware of that to some extent, I'm sure William Wolf is more aware, but he's coming from this world, this rough and tumble world where, uh, you get smeared and pigeonholed right away by the left if you advocate for for this kind of love, and yet he's doing it anyway. So he's taking a risk here, and he's absolutely right in framing it the way he frames it, that this isn't about hating anyone. This isn't about, because uh, that's how the left hears it. The left, when they when you, they hear you talk about loving your own, they think of it as you must hate everyone else, and, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm loving my own. And by the way, when you love your own, makes sense why others might love their own. Uh, he actually um, references this at the end. Uh, he quotes, actually, actually, it's funny enough, if you if you watch the whole thing, he quotes Doug Wilson, and uh, it's a it's an analogy Wilson makes, which I didn't realize Wilson had done this, because I've made this analogy too, and I, probably others have, because it's a good one. But uh, someone in a Hallmark store, store getting a card for, you know, world's best mom or something like that, and then someone else is there, and they're getting a card that says world's best mom. And do they get into a fist fight over it? Well, no, because they both understand that if if I think my mom's the best and you then it makes me I, I can understand why you might think your mom's the best because of that relationship. And that's it's it, the same thing applies to other proximate relationships, relationship to nation, relationship to community, relationship to family. And that's what William Wolfe is talking about here. This is a love thing. It doesn't mean you have to go hate someone else in the Hallmark store because they're saying their mom is the best when you think your mom is. You don't hate that person. In fact, you probably empathize or sympathize with them more uh, because of that. So 
you can go watch the whole thing if you want. It's at National Conservatism's uh, YouTube channel, William Wolf, A Christian Case for America First Government. And I want to say this too about uh, Al Mohler. So I'm going to go to the, uh, uh, if I can find it, uh, there's a lot of speeches on this particular, let's see here. If I go down, I can find it. Uh, Al Mohler's speech, there it is, was just put out. And I listened to this whole thing this morning. It was a really good speech. And this is the interesting thing. A few observations about Albert Moeller here. Albert Moeller is a really good speaker when he wants to be. He When he's off script and he's asked a hard question, oftentimes it's a word salad. He actually writes in a lot of word salads. You can't make heads or tails about what he's saying. But he is a he's good at the art of speech making. Good analogies, good well-timed jokes, good uh, stories. He's got that Baptist kind of folksy preacher thing going with the stories. I was realizing, because the speech he gives is very similar to a speech that I've given before. In fact, someone texted me, and that's one of the reasons I watched it, or, or I mean, not to find out about whether or not this accusation was correct, uh, the accusation being that he plagiarized me. But I, I watched it just to because I was curious. I'm like, well, this must be a good speech if someone thinks that Al Mohler is taking information from me. And I don't think he was. I, I, I mean, who knows? Maybe he's familiar with what some of the things I've done, but I don't think that's why. I don't think he would do that. Um, he, it, and, and there's no evidence of actual plagiarism or anything. So, but it, what he said sounded so similar to things that I've said. Let me give you an example. If you go to, and, and it's not just me, a number of people I think have made this observation, but the person who texted me was more familiar with, with uh, my work on this. But he, he goes to, I'll just play you this. You're kind of writing on the, the wake of strong theological arguments. You are living off the capital of the Old and the New Testament of Israel in the Christian church and that witness. We see the great alternative before us, the post-Christian religion of the woke, demonstrating again the Imago Dei, demonstrating the fact we will worship something. We will, we will be religious. That religion is going to work its way out. And by the way, predictably, as others have noted throughout time, in very religious form. The new woke religion has its own liturgy. It has its own doctrines. It has its own catechesis. It has its own cathedrals. It has its own doctrine of sin, its own promise of salvation. It has its own notion of sanctification. It has its own written canon of scriptures and slogans. It has its own crusading flags and choirs. It has its own inquisition and holy office. It has its cherished dogma and it enjoys the right of excommunication. Now, this is an observation that I think I first made in two, 2017. I put a blog out there and I, and I called it uh, the gospel of racial reconciliation. And I started making all these parallels and I'm like, this is a religion. This is, and I didn't know about critical race theory really at the time, but uh, I was pointing out a lot of the things that Al Mohler's talking about, and this has been more developed in in the book uh, Christianity and Social Justice: Religions and Conflict, which, by the way, is on sale today. It, the sale ends today, eleven fifty for a signed copy. So go go to the link in the info section. You can find out more about that. But uh, this is something that other people. I I came up with that un, independently, but other people have uh, made the same observation, and. It's a very good observation. And so I started wondering, well, why is Al Mohler making this observation? So I watched the speech, and it's really good. He goes after social justice. He talks about 
he doesn't proclaim himself in this particular speech to be a Christian nationalist, but he, he he's at national conservatism. That That's the conference he's at. And he makes the case that Christians, very, a little bit similar to what William Wolfe was saying, actually, not quite as aggressive as William Wolfe, and what, but, but he makes the case that Christians do need to be involved and they need to uh, see a place for Christianity in, uh, in society. They need to, loving your country is a good thing and all these social justice advocates are in the wrong. Now, here's the interesting thing to me. If you watch this great speech, I think it is good. He, there's a stopping point for Al Mohler. Uh, I mean, I think he maybe, he criticizes Richard, I don't even know if he criticizes him, actually. He just cites an observation from Richard Taylor. I think the the person he criticizes the most recently is like Gramsci. It's He has to go to like the 1930s, and he doesn't want to get, it seems like, on the social justice issue he doesn't want to go too far beyond that it seems or he just doesn't i don't know why he doesn't i have a theory though that might make sense of it but he what he doesn't do the weakness is this because his presentation does not take into account modern thinkers who are pushing the needle left instead it's this academic treatment of really people who are dead from the past who aren't here to defend themselves you avoid some landmines by doing that because if you're criticizing marx and hegel and foucault and gramsci and i mean who's going to come and get super offended someone on the left might but you're not going to have people at your institution coming at you and getting really offended by that but if you start going after Kimberly uh, Will- Crenshaw, Williams Crenshaw. Uh, if you start going after Kendi, if you start, let's let's get a little more. If you start going after Tisby, if you start going after I don't know someone at your own seminary like Jarvis Williams. If you start talking about people who are still alive, who are the actual ones that are pushing this stuff right now, then you're going to get in trouble more. There's just no doubt about it. <laughs> I know that firsthand. So I'm not saying that is his motive. That my, I have a theory about that, but it it certainly does. He, he is able to avoid some of those awkward situations, especially when it, it comes to the, the point that people at his own seminary, uh, including himself in the past, that's the funny part, are have pushed the needle in the social justice direction and now he's on a stage saying it's this religion we must reject and get back to Christianity and a, a national, uh, it, the, the concept he's talking about is kind of what's developing as a, as termed Christian nationalism. So it, it's unusual, but I wanted to commend it because credit where credit is due doesn't mean that I'm, oh, John, you're so naive. You're now trusting. I'm not saying I trust Al Mohler at all. He's either, he might just be a really, really good politician. I've described him as an opportunist before. At least that's what makes sense of his actions more than anything. But I mean, this is a guy that can get on a Zoom call with Nam and talk about every institution in America being systemically racist somehow two years ago to now. I mean, he gets in a different room where it's national conservatives and he sounds, I mean, you just want to play the national anthem in the background as he talks. It's just, it's amazing to me. So he, he may just be a really good politician, but 
I'm, I'm hopeful here that maybe because of the way things are going, if he is an opportunist, maybe that's a sign that that things are going in a, a, a little bit of a better direction and he wants to get out in front of it. And so that should encourage you, I think, as well. Even if you don't care for Al Mohler out there, uh, it's you you want everyone to be speaking in these terms. You, I mean, look, if J.D. Greer or Matt Chandler or even Tim Keller or, you know, if some of these guys started speaking this way, it's not like I'd give them a pass and be like, oh, well, you know, we can all trust you now or, you know, you're, I guess you've you've left those those woke kind of notions behind. I, I wouldn't say that at all, but I would be approving of it. So it's like I wouldn't you know want the guy to take on more power uh, or influence necessarily, but. Hey, if he's gonna have influence, and if that's what he's saying, good. You know, Paul said, if even if the gospel, this isn't the gospel here, but if the gospel was preached from, so the truth of the gospel from ill motives, then hey, at least the gospel's going forward. So, I think we can have that that view of it. So, I, here's what I also did. I looked up. I just wanted to know on the briefing when has Albert Mueller talked about Christian nationalism? Because I'm like, is he a Christian nationalist now? Like, what is he? Where is he at? And this was interesting to me because it shows, I think, the pivot. Here's what Al Mohler said about Christian nationalism in January of 2021. And just remember what was happening in January of 2021. Here's Al Mohler says this, and it exudes a certain level of caution about Christian nationalism. Here it is. What we are seeing is an effort to try to dismiss or to marginalize American evangelical Christianity by identifying it as some form of Christian nationalism. That's a very loaded term. We need to unload it, understand it, take it apart. We need to recognize where the critique is appropriate. We also need to recognize where there is an effort to try to silence public Christianity in the United States. And as Christians, biblically minded Christians, theologically serious Christians, we understand that there is a lot of bad theology out there. And when it shows up, we need to recognize it. So this is after the January 6th situation, which, as I remember, I talked about it on this podcast, Al Mohler somewhat misrepresented and just the lack of proportion to me was staggering at the time. He went after it hard, what, what happened that day. And, uh, of course, was not he, he did not say the same things as harshly and as uh, quickly as he did about some of the BLM-type shenanigans the summer before. So I remember that distinctly in my head. And this is one of the briefing episodes after that happened. Well, he says this, that it, we do need to recognize where there's bad theology. We do need to, to see these things. And, uh, and there's somewhat of a, I think a lot of what he says is actually true there, but, I, but you can tell that there's a bit of a hesitancy about that, that this, we need to look, look into this term more. And uh, and the critique is appropriate so, to some extent that there there is pro- theology that's not good out there and we we do need to admit this and so so that's what he says at that time. Check out what he said recently this past summer on his Thinking in Public podcast. Here's the clip. Nationalism has been given a bad name. I mean, even, even conservatives who who uh, once would have identified themselves clearly as nationalists. They're now running scared from the term. And we have the left uh, routinely speaking of me and of others as uh, as Christian nationalists, as if we're supposed to be running from that. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, I'm not about to run from that. 
uh, I'm, I'm not about to join their one world order. So obviously there's a difference here, a year and a half downstream from January 6th with Al Mohler not only embracing the term, but without making the qualifications he said were necessary a year and a half before. I know because I at least he hasn't on the briefing because I searched the archives there. Uh, he's willing to just kind of kind of use that term. And and he's speaking at the National Conservative meeting or conference and giving a message that would be very in line with this developing movement. I think the dust hasn't settled, so I don't know where it's all going, but he's definitely part of the development of it or wants to be. And uh, is this good or bad? I think some of you are probably very skeptical. I just want to say, though, that overall, I think I'm encouraged by this kind of thing. Everything we've talked about on the podcast today, it's, it's, a, it's a white pill Wednesday, as they say. I want to give you some really encouraging things uh, for the middle of your week here, that there are people out there like William Wolf who see what you're seeing and they want to do something about it. And you're not the only one out there trying to make a difference. There are others. And I hope you don't feel that way. And I hope you, you are trying to make a difference, though. Even if in your mind it's small, whatever God's given you, that's the lane you need to run in. And it's important. Uh, it's a matter of obedience to your creator. He's He's injected this world with the meaning and transcendence and um, the j just the motivation for a daily life is there as soon as you get up and open your eyes in the morning because he is the creator and he has put you in a place the place he wants you to be in and you have tasks to do you have missions to fulfill that is life and sometimes those missions are you just need to get up and make a meal for your family and maybe homeschool your kids or drive them to, to school or um, make sure that the errands are done. And, and those things I know can be mundane, but those are part of the mission your creator's given you. W w the problem has come in, I think, when there are moral dilemmas and situations that we need to address and confront, and then we don't do it because we're scared, we're, we think it'll hurt us, we're afraid of what's going to happen. And I would just encourage you that don't let that happen. When the time comes, when the Lord uh, is giving you an opportunity to be a Daniel, be a Daniel. And there are others out there who want to take a stand, who are disappointed, just like I am and like many of you are with the evangelical institutions, with uh, local churches even, and I don't know, the CDC, the government, and Hollywood, all of it. They're just, they see failure in, in every elite institution out there and they're doing what they can. And we'll, we're going to see in the next five to 10 years what actually happens, whether uh, a movement like this. Um, in fact, I was just reading Andrew Torba's book on Christian nationalism, which uh, is interesting. Uh, I might talk about it on this podcast, but beyond the, the content, there's, I, I'm looking at the spirit here, the motive. We just haven't had motivation. I think that's what I'm, I'm encouraged. The, the get up and go hasn't been there it seems like for years. While all the social justice stuff was happening, sometimes I felt a little bit like a lone voice. I know there were others. A.D. Robles was probably one of the most encouraging people in my mind just because he was out there saying stuff that needed to be said. It, it was like, where are the pastors and the uh, people with influence that already had shows? Like, why isn't the White Horse Inn kicking this thing out of the park, right? I, th these are the thoughts I was having. Um, I know James White did a few episodes on the dividing line about James Cone, and that really encouraged me because I thought, where, where's everyone else? 
Why isn't Al Mohler really kicking this stuff out of the park? Well, now you see Al Mohler starting to hint towards that. I don't know how far he's going to go. Is he going to fire Jarvis Williams? You know, if he doesn't do that, if he doesn't repent of some of the things he's advocated himself, then, I mean, it's, I don't consider it necessarily all legitimate, but, but it's moving the needle in a different direction than he has been moving it. That is key. That's important to realize there that there's something in the water and I don't know exactly what it is, but there's a get up and go. There's a motivation. There's an energy. Uh, Moms for Liberty, right? There's, there's the working class and the uh, just stay at home moms and soccer moms. They're, they're getting motivated to do something because I think they realize the institutions have failed. So it's up to us. And that's a good thing when we realize that, all right, God's given me time and talent and I'm going to invest it for his purposes. And part of that means taking a stand for the things that he's entrusted to me, uh, to preserve those things good, to take uh, moral stands when they're necessary. I think there's, there's an energy that's coming. It's a reaction to perhaps what we've seen in 2020. And uh, though there's a lot of dismal things to point to, I just want to highlight the silver lining because there is something moving in a better direction here. And uh, let's, I'll just put it this way. If Al Mohler's truly an opportunist, then, and, and things were really going way more in a woke direction, at least in evangelicalism, I think Al Mohler would probably, if, if that's who he is, he would be moving that direction, but he's not. So you got to wonder what's in the water, what's going on. And uh, so hopefully that encourages you. Uh, hey, whatever you can do, be, be part of this. I'm not saying call yourself a Christian nationalist or anything like that. You don't have to. If you want to, go for it. But uh, just get involved in your community. And if you've been sitting on the sidelines and you've been watching other people, and it's time to stop. It's time to do something about it. And, uh, and that might look different for different people. Um, I, I want to say this one last thing. Not everyone's going to be a podcaster. There's a place for it. Obviously, you're listening to this podcast. There is. But God's given you a unique set of abilities and a unique audience to influence. And I would just take inventory of that. Uh, maybe that is starting a podcast. It could be, but, um, I just have noticed a lot of people think, Oh, I want to make a difference. Let's start a podcast. That's, that's not always the right move or th that's not always the way you're going to make a difference. It might be good to have a podcast for educational purposes or something, but it, you want, you want to think through how can I invest to the best of my ability, the abilities of God's given me. So hopefully uh, you are all energized, ready to go, and encouraged by that. Get out there and do something. More coming later in the week. Last but not least, I almost forgot to mention it, but this is the last day that you can get Christianity and social justice, religions, and conflict, and social justice goes to church for only 1150. And I have to say this. I totally forgot to say this, but I have to say it now. Um, I Something happened with social justice goes to church. So I limited the inventory because I know knew I was running out. People were just ordering so many. I, I was actually surprised. So I have to put another order in. So I just did that today, put another order in. But it kept selling on the website, even though I limited the inventory. For some reason, it kept selling them. So those of you in the last two days who have ordered Social Justice Goes to Church, many of you are going to be waiting probably uh, two weeks before you get your order in. Everyone else, if you just ordered Christianity and Social Justice, you're going to get it within like two or three days probably. But if you ordered Social Justice Goes to Church, it's going to take a little time. And if that's okay with you, then then great. If not, you can reach out to me. But 
this book, uh, both of these books, I think are very important to understanding what's happening in the church, the threats we face from the social justice movement. First one is more of a history. Social justice goes to church. Christianity and social justice is more the apologetics of it. It's the newer book that I've written, but they're both important and, and people have told me very helpful. So you, you're going to want to get these books. Uh, go to worldviewconversation.com forward slash shop. This is, the, I mean, look, I'm selling, especially social justice goes to church. I'm selling this for basically cost. For me to get envelopes, to ship it to you, to order the books. I mean, it's basically, you know, I'm making 50 cents. Like it's, it's not really worth it technically, but it is to me because I want you to have these tools. That's why I do this. And so please, um, th- this is a, a great deal. The It ends today. So you're going to want to, Take advantage of this sale uh, for the last few hours that it's still available. Go and grab. And, and by the way, shipping's like six bucks. You can get as many as you want. If you want to order a hundred books, I wouldn't recommend that. But shipping would only be six bucks. Uh, I, I would I would hold to it. A, a, a man swears to his own hurt and doesn't change, and that's the guarantee that I've given. So uh, order them as gifts. Order them for your pastor. They're they're going to be helpful, useful analytical tools. How's that? So God bless. Hope that's helpful for you all. Website to order is in the info section. Bye now. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.